beneath a flurry of southern hemisphere stars and the swell of Icelandic music on YouTube. You asked me how I'd want you to fuck me on the first night. And here's my answer. I want you to paint my lips with my juices, make a sticky, sopping, spurting masterpiece out of my pussy. I want my breasts to go into soft heat beneath your expert fingers. I want an education in wants I didn't know I had. I want the sweetest seconds of all, the ones before you kiss me. I want the taste of scallions on your tongue when we French kissed for the first time. A taste that soon gave way to your original flavors. I want your tongue on my original flavors. Flick, flick, flick. When E. Cummings said, kisses are infinitely better than wisdom, I know now he must have meant this kiss. Your generous licking has transformed my body into an earthquake. I want to be on my knees with my lips between your thighs. I want to feel my sex turn into an ocean as I suck on your sex. I want your hands on my hair. I want to hear what I'm doing to you. The intimate, secret, needy noises that only you and I and these walls can ever know. We are so put together, you and I, beyond these walls. Here, we take each other apart. Hi, and welcome to Future Perfect. I'm Izzy Roberts-Orr, the Festival Director, and in this episode of our brand new podcast, we're going down under to explore the glorious, gory, titillating world of erotic writing in the digital age. Kim Allum is a leader in the games community. She's working with Defiant Development up in Brisbane to release Hand of Fate 2, the follow-up to the critically acclaimed Hand of Fate. She also runs Blushbox, which is a collective of games makers that explore and promote romance and sexuality in video games. She was the Queensland Young Achiever of the Year for online engagement, and she is also one of our illustrious Program Advisory Committee members. Kim sat down with Chrissy Neen, a Brisbane-based author well-known for her erotic writing, including the novel An Uncertain Grace and the email series she completed with The Lifted Brow, Stranger in the Dark. Kim and Chrissy got together to talk dirty. Here they are now. My name is Kim Allum and I'm a video game producer and the co-founder of Blushbox Collective, an initiative that promotes, hosts events and rapidly prototypes video games that explore love and sexuality. Here with me is award-winning author and erotica queen, Chrissy Neen. Hello. 
Now, before we get into the juicy stuff, I'd like to share an excerpt from Chrissy's memoir, Affection. When Paul signs off for the night, I go back into his Facebook page just to look at the little house perched precariously in the storm. It is a beautiful image, painted by a friend of his. I like the painting on its own merits, but I also now associate it with our conversations. Looking at it, I feel a liquid rush. I become unsettled. I know that I'll have to masturbate or I will never sleep. Now, what I love about that excerpt, Chrissy, and kind of fits nicely into a segue is that it's talking about current technologies that we use in storytelling, things like Facebook and social media in general. But we're here to talk about the future. Yes, which will involve social media in a big way, I imagine. (laughs) In in a big way, of course. Um, So what I want to do now is talk about uh, a bit about yourself, first of all, Mm -hmm. and what you've been working on lately. Uh, so yes, I've been um, I've been writing a lot of books, but um, I thought as a bit of a, a change from writing um, novels, I would um, do a bit of an experimental project. So um, the project that I've been working on this year has been a narrative that's divided into emails that are between me and you, the reader, and they go out once a month, and it's been through the lifted brow, and it's called Stranger in the Dark, and that project has been... Um, something to kind of just something to play with Um, it's something that's a little less structured and formal Um, the novels are all kind of you know they're really highly polished and worked on before they go out whereas this one is a bit of a um, seat of your pants month by month um, conversation between me and a reader and it's been really fun to do that. Do you think um, the structure of having something that is less polished or you know more focused on like little tidbits month to month means you have more flexibility in terms of your writing oh absolutely um i've been uh, allowing myself the experimentation of um because you the reader are any gender um so for me um one of the um, challenges was to make sure that writing to you you could be male female or otherwise so that's been a little bit of fun for me to kind of make sure that I get that right without having the editor um, pick up my mistakes, you know, um, over the long period. Um, although there is someone who does um, edit um, these from the Lifted Brown, and she um, does pick up on everything that I've seen that has been a mistake so far. Um, but that's been a really um, fun process. And also I don't, um, I'm not too far ahead. So I'm always just working on the next month as the one before goes out. So it's something that can be responsive to where I'm at, what I'm researching, the things that have come into my life, and it picks up on things that are in the air, in the atmosphere at the time that it goes out as an email. Absolutely. So therefore, it becomes a lot more topical, right? For example, um, I know completely not related, but South Park series, Mm. they turn an episode every seven days, and that keeps them on topic in terms of politics and like anything topical in the media etc etc i wanted to ask you did say it was more uh it's it's an experiment for you the the stranger in the dark series were there any other reasons why you decided to go email 
I thought that it was a really personal uh, way of connecting with an audience. I thought that um, an email subscription, so people pay basically $9.95 just for the whole year's worth of um, emails. Um, so it's really cheap. Um, and once people have signed up, there's a little frisson of them getting the email in their inbox. And I've also allowed myself to be a little bit more risque than um, I have been in the past. So there's the chance that the people getting the email might feel, you know, a little bit of a heart fluttering, oh goodness, how far have we gone? You know, because the project implicates you, the reader, in this tryst, in this affair that we're having. And so it feels a bit more personal. It feels much more like I'm speaking directly to the reader and it feels much more like I can be um, more playful and experimental with it. Do readers have the opportunity to respond? Yeah, there's an email address and I have encouraged people to respond. But it's very, you know, it's like when you get to the end of a panel session at a writers' festival and they say any questions, it's really quite um, freaky to feel like, you know, you have to speak to somebody. So I haven't been getting very many um, emails back. Um, I've had a couple, but not very many. Originally, I thought maybe people would write back to me and that would become a part of the text, but that hasn't happened. And I can see why. I can see that it's quite threatening um, for people to feel like they can participate in that way. I could see how it could get quite creepy too if someone wanted to really um, delve into it and get into it. So um, in a way, um, it's fine that there hasn't been too much response back. But um, at first, I thought that it would be quite an interactive um, you know, they're responding and me responding to them. Yeah, you think in that kind of medium, they uh, the audience would have uh, a bit more courage to, to be like, well, no one knows that I'm responding and, and it's unlikely that people will know my identity mm. about talking about this stuff, which is another issue. I think we really should be a bit more open about talking about sexuality in general. Yeah, yeah, but I think that, you know, I've, I've spent years and years thinking about it and I think for someone who's just signed up for an email project, I do understand that it's hard to write about sex and it's hard to write sex and so um, I can see where you'd get a bit of performance anxiety writing back to these quite full-on erotic emails that they're getting. Absolutely. Now you mentioned you were you know not too far into the series at this point in time but as you're going through it every uh, every month would you start to have you already started to think about what you would do differently each month like month by month or are you happy with the current formula you've got going on at the moment uh it's a it's definitely going to be a one-off story for this year so um if we continued um in future years there would be a different um focus of the story and the story has developed um so it's actually kind of started as uh, when I started it, I thought that it would be um, a simple affair between the reader and me, and it's kind of gone off in some very strange directions, um, and I like that about it, so I actually wouldn't change that, and in fact, I've kind of embraced that, and I continue to, um, it continues to get weirder and weirder month by month, so it's been really fun. <laughs> I love that. Can you share some of the, the, more, uh, the more weirder it's, it's kind of gone a little bit sci-fi. Um, so uh, the the me of the story, which is Chrissy Neen, and who looks just like me, uh, has turned out to not really be of the earth. Uh, and um, the readers um, are beginning to feel some kind of a change in them from being infected by this kind of viral 
um, message system that we have going on. So it, there's a change in both me as, as um, a writer and in them as a reader as we go on. Oh, that's so exciting, like the evolution of this new, exciting way of interacting with the audience. I think that's the very crux of why we're here discussing this today, mm. like what we're going to be doing or what we could be doing in the future with our current technologies and technologies of the future. Very cool. I want to talk now a bit about an uncertain grace. Mm. Now, before we do that, though, I believe you have a bit of an excerpt you'd like to share with the audience. I do. I do. This is um, Uncertain Grace is broken into um, five sections, which each deal with a different technology. Very appropriate for our conversation. Absolutely. But at the beginning, um, one of the first technology we're looking at is um, a virtual reality suit that um, comes as a memoir. So... Um, I was wondering to myself what would happen if the future of memoir was about virtual reality. What if you could record your sexual experience in a sexual memoir and then someone could put a skin suit on and inhabit your physicality and feel a sensory um, version of what you went through in a particular sexual encounter. And so um, for the purposes of the book, I have um, my narrator has been sent, he's a lecturer, in creative writing and he has been sent this um, virtual reality project by his ex-student who is also his ex-lover and he serially has sex with his students and um, is just about to get into another relationship with another student when this this memoir turns up and he's been asked to read it which means experience it so it starts like this how could this be the future of memoir how could a memory stick and a synthetic suit replace Nin and Levi and Thoreau? Suiting up is quite a process. At this time in the evening, I would rather be putting on my tracksuit pants. It feels too intimate, the fabric. A little like neoprene, but sheerer, softer, against naked skin. The little tube-shaped pouch for the penis. It feels almost pornographic to slip myself inside it. I suppose there is a different model for the ladies, but I can't imagine how the crotch would be configured. They use these suits for porn, of course. Pornography is the driver for most innovation. If it weren't for the needs of men, we would never have shot off into space. I press the sliver of plastic into the slot in the machine. I slip the headpiece into place and my eyes adjust to the optical limits. A grey line begins to turn blue, the words pairing suit above it. First person, present tense, prologue. Perhaps the title is a little obvious. I'll tell her this. Why is it impossible to make notes when you're in the skin? Title, I squeeze my eyes shut to commit the note to memory. Tell her to change the title. Then it begins. I might leave it there. Beautiful. Ah, <laughs> oh, There are a couple of things I want to touch upon um, in terms of that excerpt. Now, you mentioned porn being a driver for innovation. Mm. Can you share with us um, how porn has influenced some of your work in some form or fashion? It's certainly influenced it. Um, you know, what we call pornography changes from um, culture to culture and generation to generation. And so um, we considered things like um, the work of Anna Snin in her um, books Little Birds and um, The Delta of Venus that was pornography she wrote those pieces at a dollar a page for a collector so that she could live and it was definitely pornography and written for masturbation 
basically. Um, and yet nowadays, you know, it's kind of clothed in Penguin Classic jackets and we can buy them um, as, you know, great works of art and great classics. So I think that um, the definition of pornography really, really does change. But it also has been a really important thing to change the technology that we work with. So when the um, printing press was developed for the first time this new technology one of the first things that happened was that people used it to create these chat books these kind of books of pornography that were kind of underground and um, that were kind of shared and sold on the black market um, and that were completely banned because they were pornographic at the time and some of these things are now um, you know great considered classics and great works of art as well but of course we couldn't deal with sexuality and if we dealt with it it certainly wasn't for the masses you know it was only for the elite the people who were studying the upper echelon the upper echelon you know it was it was certainly like when we dug up Pompeii um, and all the kind of artworks that were in Pompeii it was only the rich men who were allowed to look at the artworks and the plebs weren't allowed to look at it because they didn't know how to deal with the erotic content of the artwork which was on someone's wall you know for goodness sake it was on a family dining table wall you know and yet when when it was discovered in the Victorian times it was suddenly only rich men who were allowed to kind of have access to it and I think that um, having things like you know the printing press where where pornography just kind of completely took off we could suddenly you know pass it around in these little kind of um, secret books and certainly um, virtual reality is another area where you know we're going to use that and we are using that for um, purposes of pornography you know it's sex sells and so that's where the money is and so that's where people are investing the money you know even in robotics um, you know robotics is partially um, the money for that is going towards working out how we can use robotics for sexual purposes and absolutely a big outcry over sex robots and you know how they're going to stop us from being intimate with our partners but this is what happens when new technologies happen the, the sex industry embraces it and takes off with it and other people are a bit bit of a lagger you know absolutely i think the like personally i feel like the sex industry, um, like you said, drives innovation and they're always at the forefront of embracing sexuality and let's think of ways where we can really use this to our advantage. Let's, let's see how we can um, explore pleasure and feel just pleasure in general, you know, and, and that's, that's the exciting part. And you're right, sometimes society does lag a little bit. Um, but you, men- you mentioned something about accessibility. Yes. Now, with the rise of the digital age and using the internet, we're no longer using print- the printing press to access pornography. Sorry, we are, and we now look to the internet. Mm-hmm. Now, with the I guess with with such accessibility, do you find yourself no longer looking to printing press to inspire your current works? Do you go straight to the internet for uh, in terms of pornography? To help your work what what is your go-to these days it depends on what i'm working on i, I did a book a few years back which um, focused on bestiality and it was p- particularly focusing on bestiality because it was about the ethics of sex and so for the purposes of a book you can um you can 
have an animal that is consenting in a sexual relationship and then you can look at the ethics of what happens if that animal is a consenting partner because it's fiction and because you can see inside you know you can see from a different perspective so what if you can see through the eyes of an animal and that animal is a consenting partner in sex with a human so for that particular um, project um, a lot of my research was internet based because there wasn't really much sort of printed matter about um, bestiality. So a lot of it was articles online, a lot of it was um, trying to, uh, you know, little clips from um, films that have been made about bestiality and stuff like that. And um, it wasn't until I realised that I was sort of hunting to see if there was a, a bestiality kind of pornographic site that I realised that it's actually illegal and that if I had seen it, I could be arrested. So um, wow. I kind of backed off pretty quickly at that point. But I did look at a lot of... Um, people getting sperm from cows um, there's an awful lot of very unerotic videos about um, people getting sperm from cows um, and other animals and and I lot I've watched lots of octopus porn like yeah. lots of octopuses having sex um, for a particular scene and that was you know that's all out there and that's fun but in terms of um, I still I still really um, go for literature in terms of things to inspire me because I work with a written word um, so that is still a really big part I still buy a lot of um, books that, and go to the library and read a lot of books that um, relate to you know the sexuality of people and other creatures absolutely I love that we touched upon bestiality that was definitely <laughs> on the topic to discuss actually whether you believe it or not um, because I actually wanted to talk about what you touched upon in terms of consent mm. from um, sentient beings that you wouldn't or, or not mm. and how you would go about that as an author for example we have these emerging technologies like I guess sex tech is on the rise. You mentioned earlier um, sex robots. For example, Real Dolls is a company who've been selling sex and companion dolls a day for the last 20 years. Yeah. And teledildonics is also an emerging industry now where you can control the features of your sex toys via the internet. Yeah. It's a very exciting time to explore uh, these uncharted territories. However, like, how are we able to touch on these topics if they're just so foreign and still up for debate like you mentioned articulating from their perspective but how do you even know what their perspective is if it's not exactly there yet exactly and that's one of the things fiction can do because fiction is really about um getting into um perspectives that are not your own and so you know for an uncertain grace i have one of the five sections is from the point of view of a robot boy who's written as a sex robot uh, who's written who's um who's created as a sex robot and i was um wanting to deal with the kind of really murky and and um dangerous territory that is pedophilia for that particular story so he's a therapy robot for people um who are pedophiles so that they can get information about these people so that they can work towards curing um, or reversing their ideation Mm. Um, and that's a very positive use of that technology Um, and of course I wanted to look at the ethical implications of that and um, one of the ethical implications is if you have an artificial intelligence what's the difference between an AI and a human and when do you become human and are you human at that point so as I was writing this boy Um, I was really thinking that it would go um, like the point of that particular part of the story would be that 
that as a boy and you know made as a young boy a 13 year old boy that this particular sex robot shouldn't be exposed to sexuality but as it turned out as I was writing him I realized that the cons- he's he's programmed to want to have sex with these pedophiles that's his actual primary directive it's his purpose it's his purpose and mm. so to actually do that wasn't an issue for him as an artificial intelligence but what was an issue was am I alive and therefore will I die and what happens if this experiment doesn't work am I going to still live will I be allowed to live past the end of this experiment so it was kind of really interesting that that um, what I thought would happen with that story really took this very strange turn and became about something else and it really made me think if something is programmed to do something and to want something in its artificial intel- you know, way mm. um, then that wouldn't be a problem for it but there would be other problems that come up so that was yeah that was that particular um, thing but I think fiction is where we can deal with this. Absolutely. And I think fiction is where we can really start to iron out the societal issues we have with things like sex robots and whatnot, because you do have the, uh, I guess, bandwidth to explore and articulate from Mm -hmm. their perspectives and Mm -hmm. really delve deeply into, like you said, this AI is programmed to deal with pedophilia. And I think it's important to, if, if not through verbal discussion on social media or face-to-face, why not fiction? Yeah, exactly. I, it's, a, it's a very safe place and it's a, a space you can kind of tease out all the implications and all the ideas without harming anyone, you know, without hurting. You know, you can do this research um, in a kind of way of following an idea through without anyone being harmed, which, you know, is a really important job I think, for fiction writers. Absolutely. Do you feel um, as you explore these contentious or, uh, I guess, controversial topics, are there things that you have to, as an author, be uh, wary of, like the language you use or um, having to deal with flack from the communities involved in those types of topics? Like, Are there certain things that you have to just be prepared for? Yeah, there are. Look, I know that when I deal with topics um, to do with sexual harm, which I haven't really done in the past, it's always been about sexual pleasure. And so this book, for the first time, I've kind of tiptoed in the murky area of sexual harm. And there are some people, particularly people who've been affected by it, who think that there is no way that we should touch on topics like pedophilia, um, that they think that, you know, that it's too triggering and it's too upsetting to even um, talk about it or to even have any kind of empathy for someone who may be a sexual predator so there's a character in my book who they're working with um, that has that is a sexual predator that has um, been jailed for pedophilia and his um, journey is one that has you know I think pushed the most buttons for people because a lot of people think you shouldn't even um, have any empathy for that person but you know, we know that um, people who are pedophiles are more often than not have a history of um, sexual abuse in their own childhood. And so for me, it was like, you have to have an empathy for that child who is being abused. And in this particular part of the story, um, it's about regression and it's about finding that, refinding that child and refinding that hurt child and seeing if there's a way of healing that before 
the damage has been done. So, you know, retraining the brain to go back to that point um, and to kind of grow naturally without having the pedophilic ideations. Absolutely. So for for me, I knew that that would touch some, um, you know, nerves, and I think it has. But most people, um, I think, that have read it have understood that I'm not doing it lightly and that I'm doing it with a view to trying to work out how can we fix these problems. Like I'm not celebrating it. It's not for titillation. It's um, to try and work out how do we have these conversations? How do we talk about it? How do we fix it? Absolutely. A very conscious effort to addressing the problem at hand. No, that's fantastic. Can you talk about any muses you have or have had and what is it about those muses that have inspired your work? Mm. Well, I I definitely look towards writers. Um, I definitely look towards other writers. And as I said, you know, Anais Nin was an early inspiration for me. Um, I've recently um, discovered um, Donna Haraway, who's um, a feminist theorist, and she's written a book called Staying with the Trouble, which um, I've discovered, and apparently apparently feminist theorists and, and cultural theorists have um, known about her forever, but I've only just discovered her, and I'm pretty in love with her at the moment. I'm going to have to look her up. <laughs> she's amazing. And she talks about this thing called the, the Cthulhu scene, which she says is, is past the Anthropocene, past the idea that humans are the centre of the planet. Um, we need to get past that in order to kind of heal things and move forward, and that's about realising we're just one part in a giant kind of cat's cradle of, of, um, of strings that attach all creatures and all things together. So it's a really lovely way of looking at it. Um, and so she's pretty amazing. Um, and she led me back to Ursula Le Guin because she talks a bit about Ursula Le Guin, a science fiction writer. Um, and I grew up on Ursula Le Guin's stories and I had forgotten um, how amazing she is. So I've gone back and read a few short stories and some essays by Ursula Le Guin and I realise now that she's the kin, she's my she's my kin. She's your spirit animal. <laughs> she's my spirit, <laughs> spirit animal. She's my kindred spirit. And it's interestingly enough, and Margaret Atwood as well, um, and it, it's funny because all of these people are older women. I kind of feel like... Um, There's nothing funny about that. No, but I, just, <laughs> I, I really didn't realise that, um, you know, these women in their um, 70s and 80s... Um, a constant are, stream of inspiration. They're the women that, you know, that drive my, um, my writing about sex and they're the ones who are, <laughs> you know, they're out there about their own writing about sexuality. And they're just awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll have to, yeah, I've added some new new people to look up on my list, so thank you very much. <laughs> um, okay, here's a good one. What is your writing superpower? I think my writing superpower is to arouse the audience. It's like... Um, it's like some kind of a drug that impregnates the words so that when people's <laughs> eyes look at them, they get a wide on, hard on, whatever you'd like to say. <laughs> yes. It feels like something that comes naturally to me. And yet, um, you know, I hear about other people saying, oh, it's so hard to write about sex. It's so hard to write um, stuff that's arousing. And yet for me, it just feels like it's a natural place for me. So I think that I'm kind of the, um, I am the arouser. If I, I love that. With a big A on my chest. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. And now one last question. What advice do you have for writers specifically looking to focus on erotic literature? I think um, look 
past um, look look through erotica and there's a, an amazing um, array of erotic writers from way back you know from China in the um, turn of the century you know or turn of several centuries ago in, in BC even there's people who were kind of putting together symbols and words that created an erotic fruition so look to other cultures look to um, other ways of writing the erotic that has been there for you know for centuries, ages, for centuries. Yes, yes. and also um, look past that then to um, other works of art like I think that visual arts um, is an area where um, the erotic is so visceral and immediate and um, to kind of immerse yourself in some of the great works of visual arts will really feed literature so you know immerse yourself in art but not just writing Beautiful, juicy stuff there and great advice for all you future erotic writers. Thank you so much for joining us, Chrissy. Thanks, Kim. Angela Serrano is a 2017 Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellow and she's working on Transcendental Ickiness, a collection of short erotic fiction about queer young people of colour making their way in a world that's not always ready for them. I sat down and chatted to Angela about her writing practice and what's hot or not. So I'm joined by Angela Serrano, a Melbourne writer whose work spans many forms and who has this year been working on Transcendental Ickiness, a collection of short stories for queer women of colour. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, so thanks for having me, by the way. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, Transcendental Ickiness is a, yes, it's a short erotic fiction collection. Actually, that's probably not right. I think I'd rather call it short erotica collection because right now I've been writing things that aren't necessarily short stories and um, and I want to be flexible. I don't want to put a box on what I think it should be. And one thing I learned is that the more you write, especially in this genre, the more the more flexible I have to be and the more the characters just take over a scene and the more I the more I hear their voices, the more I feel what it's like to be under their skin the more I, I see that I have to respect that and sometimes that means throwing the plan out the window, which is something that I used to struggle with because I have control issues, but I think I'm getting better at it. And so when you expand that idea to erotica rather than erotic fiction, uh, what sorts of other examples might there be with those short pieces? Well, there might be a little bit of erotic poetry. There might be some little vignettes that flow more lyrically, where it's not really a short story in the sense that you've got these two characters interacting, but maybe it's more of a perspective exercise. And certainly a lot of the little works that I've been writing over the past couple of weeks are exercises in perspective where I try, where I'm feeling the heartbeat of someone's character 
in my chest and I have to honor them by by writing what they tell me and sometimes it's absolutely not related to some notes that I've been working on for months or a character that I thought I um, really wanted to work with. So it's about, so I'm trying to be more in the moment and with erotica I think you have to be if you want it to feel honest, if you want the reader to connect with a scene. I think it was, um, I might not be saying her name right, Chrissy Neen? Yeah. Yeah, Chrissy Neen. Yeah, she, um, I remember s- watching this interview and she was saying something like the beauty of erotic writing is that you're connecting with the reader in such a way that you're making them come even though you're not there in the room with them. And so I think it's really important to honor the moments that you're given while you're doing your writing practice. How do you go about starting to craft pieces? Do you do research or does it just come from your imagination? Some of the work in this collection is inspired by people that I know. I wouldn't really say people that I've had sex with, but people that I know, stories that I've become aware of through relationships that I've had, which are not necessarily erotic relationships. So it's not necessarily that I go and do research, although obviously romance writers, people that do um, historical fiction, people that do that sort of thing, they, they do their research. But I, but I don't do that. I just like to write. I find that I'm at my most effective when I'm writing from something that, a place of having been there, either because it was through a conversation that I had with someone I know, or having experienced it myself. Yeah. How do you road test your pieces then? Do you just kind of put them out there in the world and go, I trust that this is sexy? Or do you have test readers? Well, I'm really just starting out. Like I haven't really published erotic pieces before. When I was much, much younger, during the dawn of the internet, I used to read a lot of queer anime fan fiction, and I used to write a little bit of that as well, because who didn't? Honestly, who didn't? And I got a pretty good response from them, so I know that this is something that I can do, but obviously that's a very different audience. So trying to do literary erotica, that's a bit different. Or even trying to do like, kind of like a more kind of pop erotica that's different as well so well to answer your question I don't really have test readers but if anyone wants to volunteer then yeah I'd be very happy to you know throw my erotica at you and see what you think so what then does success look like for you in terms of your writing practice or in terms of what you want someone to get out of your work when they pick it up and read it I want them to feel like once they're done, they can look at someone they love or really, really like and say, hey, babe, I'm in the mood. (laughs) Let's hop into bed. I want them to feel 
soft and vulnerable in a sexy way, in a way that makes you feel like you really want to be close to someone, you want to spend hours in bed with someone. Like I want to feel, I want them to feel like they're able to bring their defenses down when it comes to sex or telling someone how they feel about them. That's what I want. That's what success looks like for me. I feel like so much of the popular idea or version of erotica that we have is as it's just like fucking, you know? And I wonder, I feel like so much of what you've been talking about has intimacy at the core of it and a sense of care and connection. So how does that play into the work that you consume as well as the work that you produce? Well, I I read. I'm willing to read anything. So I've read some of that. Yeah, let's get it on stuff. Um, I like that this is the code now. Yeah. <laughs> and I think some of these people are like, there's so many categories, like so many categories. Like I've read, and I remember fall, like chasing this lead that I like I read in a Vice article, I think. But it was an article about how people are making like a lot of money from doing online erotica. So they'd write these stories, like 3,000 words, 5,000 words, 10,000 word things that it'd sell them from anywhere from 99 cents to like, I don't know, like $3. And you can, and, and they self-publish their work. And some people have developed all sorts of platforms and go to conferences because of the work they've produced in this way. And you get, you get to see the interesting categories, like apparently, an Asian male, there's a, there's a demand for Asian male heroes because that's not something that's often reflected in, in in romance and even in mainstream sitcoms like shows like Master of None and The Other Guy where you have a male romantic lead. Like that's not really a thing that's that's happening a lot in 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 in. in broadly any kind of romantic or sexual. No, we have a very neutered yeah. kind of archetype yeah. of Asian men when it comes to sexuality, Yeah, um, which I, I think is yeah. vastly unrepresentative. But that's interesting that it, you're seeing yeah. that kind of reflected in then yeah, in online the erotica. Yeah. yeah, okay. And there's also a category called BBW for big and beautiful women. And it's for curvier women who want to be regarded as sexy and beautiful, but not in a fetishized kind of way. And there, and and so this article ha- also had all these tips about how you write, so that any kind of reader that generally identifies as, say, like an Asian male of any kind, any like or someone who's BBW, because if you're too specific describing the characters, like. If you describe the Asian male as this Japanese guy who's this kind and has and does this sort of thing for a living, then that excludes a whole bunch of people. Yeah, other Asian males maybe want something a little more general so they can plug into the fantasy better. And similar with BBW, like you say, and she's this blonde size sixteen woman. Then you're then what about someone who might maybe a size fourteen or maybe a size twenty? So there are all these there are manuals about how to do this kind of short-form, self-published erotic work. 
So can you recommend, I mean, where if someone was wanting to dip their toes in, you've even got a couple of books here with you. What are you reading at the moment? These books, I'm not really reading them at the moment, but I love them. One is Lady Chatterley's Lover. I'm going to be honest, I haven't read the novel from cover to cover. I just did the 14-year-old thing where I just looked for the sex scenes and so if you Oh, if you just if you throw the book to the floor, you'll probably see where I've like opened the book and lingered over certain scenes. Um, I really love the work of Angela Carter. I don't know if a lot of people are, are reading her these days, but I remember discovering her during freshman English class many, many years ago. And it's it's not necessarily like I don't think she really set out to write erotic work, but there are a lot of really erotic scenes in in her retellings, in her adult retellings of children's fairy tales. So those are two works that I really, really love. And these are gifts I give to people that I know like reading erotica. Those are really good recommends. Are there any particular challenges that you've encountered with erotic writing? It can be really hard to... And maybe this is just because I'm starting out, but it can be really hard to really flesh out a like a proper story, like with a proper narrative arc. If I'm more interested in really exploring the characters' interior worlds and their relationships with each other, with each other like something has to happen, and I have to be better at plotting. So that's really more of a, a personal challenge. Sometimes I think people don't really take erotic writing that seriously like if I say like if I if, like if I were at a salon and there's some old white dude distinguished old white dude there and I was like and what do you do what kind of writing do you do in you know although let's be honest a lot of old white dudes don't really ask young women of color what they do or what they're working on it's just very from but anyway if I had to actually say what I did and they said it's erotic writing it's queer erotic writing then they'd be like what and I remember that happened one time. I was um, I was uh, I was at um, a writer's drink. So I'm gonna say when and I go to a lot of writer's drinks anyway. And there was this dude. He was like, "And what kind of writing do you do?" And I said, oh, "I'm doing queer erotic fiction." And he was like, "Oh!" And his eyebrows went all the way up. And, and he was like, "But why queer?" I could almost see the question in his eyes. And I'm like, mm, "Because I'm queer, and that's what I like to read." But sometimes there are men and me- fe- women fucking in the scenes, but. Yeah, it's still pretty queer. It's still pretty queer. So what does a day in your life look like when it comes to writing? Can you talk us through your creative process a little? Yeah. I'm not the most disciplined writer. so, And it's probably because I do a lot of other work as well that has nothing to do with writing. So I'm also a professional art model for university art classes and artist groups. So that means I work, sometimes I work during the day or at night. And um, I'm also a professional extra. And sometimes my agent sends me work like just the day before, which means that the next day I'm on set, usually for four to eight hours, sometimes more. So my days are generally pretty unpredictable. But I can tell you about what happened this morning. So I woke up, had breakfast. And then I dealt with some invoicing issues because, you know, we all need to get paid. And then I worked on a couple of pitches, 
sent them through. And what I would have been doing if I wasn't here is I probably would be like looking at my notebook and trying to get some writing done while listening to Broadway music that I sometimes share on Twitter. For me, getting into the mood, like the mood is really, really important for me. And lately I find that I'm, I can relax into the process more if I'm writing longhand than if I'm typing on a computer. And do you have any advice for aspiring erotic erotica? We'll, we'll give it the broad term, not erotic fiction writers, but erotica writers. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't been published yet. Um, do I get to get a good advice? Um, I guess what I would say is really read widely. What my supervisor used to say, read widely and wildly. So don't just get stuck in one genre or even one like, kind of erotica. Like if you like doing the self-published ebooks or e-short stories, that's fine. But maybe dip into Lady Chatterley's Lover every now and then, just just to broaden your sense of how language can be used to titillate someone. It may not inform your writing per se, but maybe it'll make you better a better, I don't know, lover or something, or better at courtship or whatever. Read widely and wildly. Yep. And then you can figure out how many different ways there are to say, I want you. Yeah. By the sounds of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Hooray! Find links to all the great recommends in this episode in the show notes on SoundCloud. From the Emerging Writers Festival, the Digital Writers Festival is back in 2017. Whether you're into podcasts or poetry, fanfic or specfic, if you're interested in the future of storytelling, this online first festival is for you, wherever you are. We'll be releasing content and streaming events through the DWF website. Log on and tune in to join the conversation from the 24th of October until the 3rd of November. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their new EP, Songs in Your Name. You can find them on Facebook as Huntley Music. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge the First Nations, First Storytellers, and traditional owners of this land. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and to the elders of all the lands this podcast reaches. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again soon. If I could just, I could just, I could Fucking.